Do you recall a day where everything clicked into place, where the world seemed to move in perfect harmony and every task flowed effortlessly? Introducing you to London Nootropics, adaptogenic coffee blends, thoughtfully crafted to elevate and balance your day, delivering all the perks of your beloved coffee, plus the incredible benefits of adaptogens, which also help to dial down those less than loved side effects like jitters, anxiety, and that all too familiar crash. A premium mix of medicinal mushroom extracts and other potent adaptogens, each blend is targeted for a specific purpose depending on what you need. Flow enhances your mental clarity and focus, Zen is your go-to for stress relief and balance, and Mojo offers that clean natural energy lift. It's the synergy between caffeine and adaptogens that works wonders, allowing us to relish the caffeine buzz without the drawbacks, ensuring a smooth, sustained energy flow. My top pick is the Zen Blend. It's a lifesaver for those of us who are caffeine sensitive and not to mention comes in the most charming packaging. So why not elevate your coffee experience with London New Tropics? Discover the perfect blend, find your flow and enjoy an exclusive 20% discount with the code SaturnReturns at LondonNewTropics.com. Hello and welcome to Saturn Returns with me, Kagi Dunlop. This is a podcast that aims to bring clarity during transitional times where there can be confusion and doubt. Pausing this for a moment because I've got something exciting to share. Today's episode is brought to you by London Nootropics, the masters of crafting adaptogenic coffee blends that don't just taste heavenly, but they also boost your energy the right way. Now we all love that zesty kick from caffeine. It snaps us awake by outsmarting those sleepy adenosine receptors in our brain. But here's the kicker. Caffeine can hike up our cortisol, giving us the jitters or anxiety, particularly if you're like me and caffeine sensitive. But that's where the magic of adaptogen steps in. These natural heroes level out our cortisol, smoothing the energy boost from caffeine without the downsides. Plus, while caffeine tends to rush in and fade away, leaving you crashing, adaptogens extend that energy, keeping you vibrant without reaching for another cup. So if you want to find your most productive self with Lion's Mane and Rhodiola in their flow blend, Cordyceps in Mojo is known to increase our aerobic capacity, oxygen flow and boost ATP. So it's perfect before a run or workout or when you're feeling fatigued. So if you're intrigued and you want to dive deeper into their blend secrets and discover which adaptogens sync with you, try visiting their website. And because you're part of the Saturn Returns family, enjoy a special 20% off at London Nootropics Adaptogenic Coffee with the code Saturn Returns. Enjoy. When women are on a date... I think we forget that we should be thinking, do you make me happy? Mm. Are you funny enough for me? Are you interesting enough for me? Uh, You know, are you good enough for me? Like, I know I would go on dates and not think that. I'd be like, oh, I hope I I look good. I hope I'm good enough today and being my best self. And actually, no, we're sitting across those tables and we should be asking those questions. Today's guest on Saturn Returns is Jada Cesar. Now, Jada has quite a lot going on. We have a lot of mutual friends and she's a very impressive young woman. She's a UN ambassador for women with a master's degree in child psychology, as well as being a body positivity and mental health advocate. I loved having this conversation with Jada. I really think she's an inspiring girl and I think a lot of people look up to her for good reason. She uses her platform to speak out on subjects around body positivity and mental health. And we discuss all those things in this episode One thing I found particularly interesting was this idea of body neutrality. You know, the conversation has shifted in a more positive way, but is it still this obsession around women and their bodies? But before we dive into today's episode, let's check in with Nora, our astrological guide for the season. I think that um, body neutrality philosophy is very interesting because to me, um, it sounds very Saturnian, it's very mature, it's very grounded, it's not as gregarious as a body positivity movement, which is brilliant, but that sounds very more Jupiterian to me, it sounds more expansive. Um, The body neutrality philosophy honors our body by way of 
I mean, being grateful for it and, and, and seeing what it does for us on a daily basis. It's making us aware of our boundaries, but also of all the possibilities that we have within us. So we're making it very physical. We're making it about our body, our vehicle in this world. And I think that as we are being made aware of it, we are willing to um, take better care of it, um, acknowledge what it does do for us and kind of do everything that we can to preserve it. And I think it feel that instinctively during your Saturn return. Jada, welcome to the Saturn Returns podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. How are you? Uh, this morning I'm feeling grounded, settled, happy, ready That's to good. take on the weekend. Because I would say for the audience or people that don't know you, from the outside, you are definitely someone that seems like they really have a strong sense of self. Mm-hmm. Would you say you've always been that way? And is that something that you are aware of or is that just something that perhaps comes across to someone like me? Uh, I don't think I've ever thought of myself like that. Um, and I think definitely growing up, I was very strong-headed in a sense of my my dad would enroll me into a lot of hobbies and you know this I've said this before but like I played the violin for many years and I swam for many years and I learned to have a strong sense of self and that's where a lot of my self-esteem comes from and I was able to carry that into the work that I'd been doing for the last 10 years as a plus-size model and a mental health activist but I didn't ever know that I was projecting that out there. In fact, I probably felt that I wasn't doing enough and I needed to do more and I needed to be stronger and get, you know, more credentials under my belt and know more about what I was talking about. Was that an influence of your father then kind of enrolling you in all these things? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He was somebody that would say to me, so are you going to do your master's? And I'd be like, yeah, I've signed up. I'm about to do it. And he's like, okay, can you do this in six months? Is How long does it take? And I'm like, no, 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 it's going to take me like a year. And maybe I can maybe defer it and do it in two years. And he'd be like, why two years? Come on, you can do this, six months. <laughs> like he'd just be so irrational, but not in a pressurizing way, in such a loving way. Mm-hmm. Like he would just want the best. He would, and not in a way that he expected the best. Like you would be worthless if you didn't achieve it, but you can it was it. like, you can, and I support you and I see you. Wow. somebody that can do that. So he's quite a powerful influence in your life. Mm. You know, he, not only in hindsight, he passed away five five years ago. And only in hindsight, I, I really appreciated that he was an immigrant from Turkey that came to the UK, that got into the hospitality industry, that became an entrepreneur and set up his own business. And actually that takes a lot of guts for somebody that yeah. can speak English. And A lot of guts. I think he... and somebody that can't speak English and managed to learn how to do taxes. Like, that's the bane of my life. I mean, I'm still learning how to do taxes. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> how to do my taxes. And he just, I think it was his presence that had a massive influence, just the way he was. I think I definitely grew into my ability to harness self-esteem, but he gave me the foundations to sort of bounce from by attaching self-esteem to a skill set or a hobby how does that work I guess like as in if you've achieved x then you like it builds your self-esteem absolutely I think like you know it's healthier to have your self-esteem attached to you know camaraderie as a team in a sport with your mates and you know moving further up the league in a healthy way of course it become it can become unhealthy but in a healthy way that would give me more fulfillment than perhaps feeling like I need to stick to one's body size and restrict myself and what Mm. I eat so that I can get these positive strokes of reinforcement about my appearance. And I remember really feeling this a lot when I lived in New York. Was Was that when you were modeling? When I was modeling, yeah. I, I lived in Manhattan and I remember walking into some rooms and being so naive to the fashion industry. I knew nothing about it before I got into it. I didn't even know the difference between like high street and Couture and editorial. I, I was like so oblivious. Um, because I had worked in a mental health space where people were compassionate and asked how you were doing and really cared for your answer. And then I stepped into a room that was like, 
hi, how are you doing? And as soon as you answer, they kind of turn their head away and are taking a seat, yeah. you know? And they're just brutal. Brutal. So wait, to take it back a step, the mental health stuff you were doing before, like, because mm. you, you've achieved a lot in, you know, considering how young you are. So what were you, what were you studying? And then how did that get onto mental health? And then how did you get onto the modeling industry? Okay, how long have we got? <laughs> so I'll keep, it short. I'll keep it short, in a nutshell. So I was studying my master's and in the lot and the last six months, I was working with a lot of young people that had eating disorders and body dysmorphia. And I couldn't quite, I guess, tell them as much as I wanted to tell them in that space of like, you can get through this, you can do it. And I was trying to understand like the crux of a lot of their their traumas and although a lot was family related it was almost accepted in certain spaces to restrict your diet so a lot of these young girls had anorexia and they would then get praised when they would walk outside and people would say you look great and Mm -hmm. and they would say you know I wish I looked like x or I wish that my face looked like this and I would question you know I would I traveled a lot in my kind of uni years and I would go to different countries and everyone's idea of beauty was so different. And so for me, I, and as somebody that grew up never reading magazines, I didn't have an idea or the pressure of and it what I should look like. Yeah, it doesn't sound like you had a, a, any family pressure either to like be or look a certain way. No, no I mean, my mum's Spanish, my dad's Turkish. Like food is a massive part of our culture. Mm. Uh, the dinner table in the kitchen is where all the conversations happen. As soon as you walk in our house, we give you food. And we sit you down and have tea. And we have, I, I grew up having a good relationship with my body. Of course, I was aware that I was bigger than my peers. I was taller than my peers. I was like a size 14, five foot nine. How old? At like 12. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, really developed, like big boobs, big bum. Like, I, I what felt was that bigger. experience like for you? Because um, I had the complete opposite. And that was, it was horrible. Like, I was the one that had like, didn't develop all the girls around me all my friends like looked Mm. older and I was like I wish Mm. I looked like that that's interesting I just realized that when you're a teenager you always want what you can't have and you want to mold to become the average norm I wanted I wanted a really normal name I didn't want to be called Jada I wanted to be called Jade not that you know it's it's more normal in this country to be called that and I would say to everyone my name's Jade because they would get it now I'm like I love my name Mm. um but it was, you do feel it. And it's this like subtle sense of not fitting in. Yeah. Because those things that make us stand out then fit, we just want to cut them away. Mm-hmm. But then I think, I mean, I particularly think that post your Saturn returns into your 30s, you're like, I love all those things that set me apart. Mm. But it takes that journey to getting there. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. And then from there, I guess... I just was busy with all my hobbies. So I would feel like I don't look like everyone else, but I actually have some stuff to talk about when I'm in those rooms and I'm talk- when I'm sat down with these boys, like the group of guys that we used to hang around with, I'd be able to conversate in different ways and pull from different areas of my life, whereas some people didn't. And so they felt they had to become whatever they felt they had to become, like a certain yeah. size or look a certain way. I guess, or to capture people's attention and imagination it was to focus on their appearance. Mm -hmm. And I completely get it. And I I just felt the same kind of echo of that when I was modeling in New York and I'd walk into these rooms with these beautiful, beautiful girls that were just the saddest, the most unhappiest and actually not very nice. And so- Well, because they've been pulled apart all the time. Yeah, yeah. And actually, of course that is the case. and, And, but I think we can sometimes project like beautiful people are on the outside and that means that they are beautiful on the inside. And we all have a, a kaleidoscope of different yeah, aspects to our personality. Yeah. And I think growing up that women, like girls weren't propelled into the space of being able to show how multi-hyphenate they are in the same way they are now. Like we see adverts with girls that are engineers and and 
train drivers and fire women, mm-hmm. you know. But when I was little, I didn't see any of that. There was one beauty ideal, sort of. Yeah, and you know, you're a girl, you sit pretty, you cross your legs, you keep quiet and you be sweet and kind. And and I was never that little girl. I was a tomboy. I used to sit with like my legs wide open. Like I had no sense of self when I was like a kid. And, and I just was never somebody that was ever going to be stifled. Like I had an opinion of things. Like I would sit, I remember being eight years old and watching a documentary. I don't know why I was watching it, but it was about um, the dog meat industry in South Korea. And I remember finishing that saying to my mum, we need to write to the House of Parliament and we need to stop this. I loved animals growing up. I was like completely obsessed. It wasn't Barbies. It was all about dogs and horses. And I was like, okay, fine. All right, write in, do what you need to do. And we'd get letters in the post every month about an update. And and so I just think, going back to your very first question of my sense of self, I think my dad had a huge influence on letting me be, letting me spread my wings to its widest capacity, which could easily have shut down. Mm. And I think I just ran with it. I was like, cool, all right. I'm going to do this. Well, those those early years are the most formative ones. And so mm. the influence of our parents is is so crucial because mm. and I think what happens is a lot of people get told, like, they can't show all of themselves mm. and then they kind of cut parts away. Mm. But to talk about the... Um, so when you went and worked with some girls, how old were the girls that you were working with in terms of the ones with the eating disorders and stuff like that? Um, so it was between... Seven and 14, I think. Seven and 14. Yeah. As young as seven. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, and this was, you know, I was observational, doing observational work at this point. And it was the impetus to talk about it and vent my frustrations and my, like, uh, the urgency to change things came through on Instagram. And so I would create images with me in the foreground with my body, the size size 16, and would just write how I felt and how I felt other people should feel about their bodies and why we needed to be kinder to ourselves. And this was new, like, you know, it's quite common now. And it's a conversation that it's it's mainstream in some ways. But it wasn't body at positivity. The time. But at the time it wasn't, no. And it was really new to see somebody that looked like me reflected in those spaces but social media kind of democratized everything in some mm, way and so it completely changed the landscape yeah allowed us to share whatever we felt we wanted to so then working with those girls was that was it something that you were passionate about before or was it really through that experience of seeing it firsthand that you were like fuck something needs to change and I need to be someone that actually stands up for this Absolutely, yeah. I, if I'm look, looking back, I had no interest in talking about body positivity. It wasn't something that I necessarily cared about. I was, I didn't have, I think people term it now like body neutrality, where you don't think about your body. Sorry to interrupt. Body neutrality is like when you don't really th- think about it too much. Yeah, yeah, you're just... I mean, neutral. does any woman think like that? <laughs> I mean, I, I, just, don't, I don't think I thought... I Maybe at like 12. Okay. I, I think from... What I think is a really difficult time is during adolescence when you go through puberty because mm-hmm. obviously both men and women, our bodies change, but the difference is a woman's changes in a way that sometimes I believe feels like it's turning on you. Mm. And I think that I went, I developed very late and I remember like going from like a stick that just all I wanted was to put on weight because I, I hated that I looked younger mm. and, like, no boys looked at me. And I know a lot of people listening will be like, oh, poor you, you were thin. But actually, you know, like you said, every the grass is always greener. Like, you always mm. want what you don't have. And I just, like, would eat so much. And then suddenly I started to put on a bit of weight, but it kind of went on in all the wrong places. And I was like, well, this doesn't feel very good. And then I went, then I yo-yoed like really dramatically to the other side. Mm. And I kind of, to be completely honest, was like slightly at war with my body for the best part of the next decade, mm. sort of quietly. So I think that, you know, the idea of body neutrality is like an amazing concept and something that I'm perhaps most in now and I don't identify so much with my body in terms of that 
narrating my self-worth but I was brought up that it would and I think a lot of people might feel the same yeah and with social media the interesting movement that's happened now it's like like you said it's incredibly positive that it's opened up a space for different body types and open conversations about all this kind of stuff but in a way it's just another way of women's bodies being objectified and obsessed over It's just like the different terminology and and different categories, but it's still the impetus and focus is on the female form and its value. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think putting this term allows people to um, kind of articulate maybe how they're feeling. Yeah. But at the same time, why are we still talking about it? Mm -hmm. Why? Why? Like, let's talk about how amazing women are working, you know, developing like tech companies or let's talk about other things besides our appearance mm-hmm. for a change. Because as someone that's sort of like, it sounds like in a way accidentally gone into that space and becoming an advocate for it. Do you ever get frustrated? Like, I don't want to talk about this anymore because it's, you know, it's not who I am or what I am about ultimately. I don't get frustrated. Um, I get incredibly exhausted at times um and and want to talk about other things and I do mm-hmm. <laughs> I kind of use it as a Trojan horse and just cycle yeah, in with that's something smart. else but what I found is I'm sort of moving out of the modeling fashion world because I think during that decade of my life and maybe it is moving into my 30s now and being in a really loving relationship and partnership where I don't feel like I feel like I've leveraged my work in that space to the place that I wanted it to become. So in 10 years, plus size models weren't, they they were non-existent in the UK. And I was one of the first in so many different ways. And now I think it's really saturated. I think brands are now extending their size ranges consistently and constantly. And they see that it's such a lucrative market. And now I'm kind of like, my my work is done or there's so many front runners in that space that can do this better and are more passionate than I am. Mm-hmm. And I always knew my 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 thing isn't was never going to be about body positivity, but it was going to be teaching people how to just see their own ability to be great and being able to hold a mirror up to people in like the best possible way. And I think it's hard to to see that within yourself. And so I just now leverage my platform to talk about those things. Like I'm on my next, my new journey is going inside and doing a lot of meditation recently to kind of clear my head of, you know how you say you can go through different times in life and you get different messages and conditioning and wiring. And Mm -hmm. I feel like my twenties was filled with me kind of fighting the fashion industry in some Mm -hmm. way. Which must have been tiring. Exactly. But then uh, at the same time, you also learn the tricks of how do I speak? How do I behave in this room? How do I move someone's opinion forward? Mm. How do I bring them and walk them through this door that they don't really see is the direction they should be going in? And so I do a lot on social media uh, as a content creator. And... In the next year, I'm developing actual resources to help people. So going, kind of taking a 360 and going back to what I first did. And so I've just, oh God, I've just signed up to do a course, um, a diploma in neuroplasticity. Oh my God, wow. To find out <laughs> what. God, you really, you really have achieved a lot. <laughs> I mean, it hasn't started yet. So we'll see if I get to the end. <laughs> what is neuroplasticity for those who don't know? So it's understanding how the mind works and it's inner. So it's about conditioning. Um... And yeah, there's there's just so much more to it that I just I don't even know. I'm turning on. It's 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 actually been something that's been coming up in a lot of conversations for mm-hmm. me recently in different spaces. And I mean, I had um, a friend come over last night, and we ended up having quite a a deep conversation. And he was like, "You almost have like Stockholm syndrome on yourself, mm. and this thing of." creating this quite harsh infrastructure for you because you like didn't trust the way you used to behave. You're so in your own head and so mm. self-critical because you think that that's the only way you're going to do well and stay on track. And I just sometimes like, oh my God, I'm actually quite unkind to myself in my head all the time. Like the, mm. the common narrative is like not very nice, but I'm so used to it that I don't even 
realize I'm doing it. Mm. And at a point in my life, it was perhaps a necessary voice because I wasn't behaving in alignment with myself and wasn't looking after myself. Mm. But it's got to the point now where I was like, I don't want to be thinking this way. And it is, is, like you say, it's it's a muscle. It's something that we have to be aware of and mm. practice and actually catch ourselves and be like, no, I'm not going to think that way, but I'm not going to tell myself that thing. What else can I say to myself that achieves the same thing, yeah. but in a kind way? You know, we have to sometimes, I believe it's necessary to take the more difficult route in life. Mm. But then when you're actively always doing that to kind of prove a point or it's like going up a mountain with sort of rocks in a backpack, it's like sometimes you're just doing that. Mm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And the word that comes to mind when you're talking is my favourite word and it's boundaries. And Mm. I learn... See, boundaries are such an interesting topic for me because I honestly, I love the idea and the concept, but sometimes I'm like... I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, and you know the School of Life. Have mm-hmm. you ever watched any yeah. of their stuff? Love it. It's like my favourite little place Amazing. that I go to. And, you know, anytime I feel like I don't know, because I don't know about you, but my parents, as lovely as they were, they weren't emotionally articulate in the slightest. That generation just weren't. They weren't. They, we never spoke about mental health. I think as far as it went, and I remember having this conversation with my mum, is that my granddad, when he was stressed, he'd have bad nerves. Like that's that's the like the, the furthest it goes, and you're like, what? And so if I've ever, and even to this day, even with my academic background, even to my the studies that I'm about to take on, I still don't know the answers, and I Google it, and I just find like if I don't know the answer, I go and research it. And the School of Life's a great point, but the reason I say that is because I was looking into boundaries a lot in this last year, and boundaries. For me, growing up, were presented as something bad. Like, you know, boundaries are telling someone off or boundaries are saying like, no, you can't, or it's creating distance. But actually, as I've gotten older, I've realized that boundaries are, yes, protecting you, but they're also protecting other people. Like they're important and they're vital in laying the ground down of what you can expect from me, but also what I can expect from you so that it's not a great area. The lines aren't crossed. So you both know where you stand. And when you want to remove the boundary a little bit, then somebody else knows where they stand with you. And if that person, and if I'm speaking more in a relationship term now, if that person likes you and is interested and wants to release their boundary a little bit, then you move closer and closer and closer Mm -hmm. together. In that time, trust is built. In that time, you understand that person a bit more. Okay, I've got an interesting point here or question. Do you think it's easier to establish and create your own boundaries when you know that person is going to meet you and they are going to respond well and they are going to nurture that relationship? Mm, Interesting question. Because I think on some sort of psychological level, it's easier to create boundaries when you know you're being held. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And I don't mean literally held, I mean spiritually held. I really actually think the opposite. I think it's easier to create boundaries when you feel there's a threat. When somebody, is, when somebody is incredibly kind and nice, you just, or like you trust them or you know you're going to be held by them. You can let Then that I can let a boundary go because I feel safe. Mm-hmm. It's a safe, secure environment. If I didn't feel safe, then my back's up a little bit. I'm like, But there's Whoa. a different, there's boundaries and there's barriers, you know? And I think sometimes okay. they get like mixed up because boundaries, like you say, it's like a, it's a, you know, these are my non-negotiables. This And like to feel safe in a situation where you can actually be like, these are my needs. Mm. Can you meet them? Perhaps on some level, we're only, it's a lot easier to do that when you know they're going to be met. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think asking someone, so I, I think for me, how I scope out safe, secure spaces is, by have it by not not mentioning like these are my needs but seeing how but explaining my expectations in some way and okay, you don't how, have to meet them but if you choose to be here I'm speaking relationships now I, you know yeah. I guess this could work for work relations business relationships too it's like what do you want out of the business relationship what do you want out of the romantic relationship but and you really can simple, leave yeah these really simple things seem really hard for most people they to are. do and myself included why do you think that is I, I i speculate but i know why they were hard for me is because i didn't have enough healthy 
relationships being modeled to me. Of boundaries growing up. Of how, how to do that. I know my parents were wonderful, but there wasn't loads of conflict or healthy arguments in the house. You know, my dad, mm. and it worked for my mum and dad, to be honest. Like my dad was the Turkish man that took off care of the family. My mum was happy being the homemaker. Mm-hmm. But I think for me, as somebody that is a, an entrepreneurial, like, boss. <laughs> I like to think sometimes when I'm making money. Um, woman that knows what she wants and has an opinion on things. There's going to be conflict. There has to be somebody that can match that and Mm. meet that. And and conflict is actually a healthy thing. It's brilliant. Mm. And I used to feel so uncomfortable. Like anytime I'd see my my two older sisters would argue all the time. They would bicker all the time. And I'm such an empathic person that my stomach used to get like, like I used Mm. to get a sickly feeling in my stomach when I would hear them arguing. And growing up, I used to hate arguments. I would avoid them. I was somebody that didn't like conflict, but then... I don't know. I still, parts of me struggle to know how to Handle have a productive it. argument mm-hmm. um, or share constructive criticism. But I think it's brilliant. I think anger is useful. I think anger is showing you that you need to create a boundary for yourself. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that you're out of control, how we often see it demonstrated on TV and in the media of like crazy, angry woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... um I was the same growing up, actually, in terms of, like, my family's quite argumentative. They thrived off it a little bit. And I remember observing them and just, again, I'm a bit of an empath, so I just, I would hate it because I would absorb all of that energy and just wouldn't, I'd just be sad. Whereas Mm -hmm. my family are quite able to just, you know, have a huge raging argument and they'd be like, do you want a cup of tea? Like, it's just all kind of gone. And then in turn, that affected my relationships in terms of like me not being able to speak because Mm. and what would happen was when the emotion or something came up, I would just bury it and build up a barrier and kind of go emotionally Mm. silent or like shut shut down emotionally, which is actually really unkind to the other person because they just have no idea what's going on. It's called stonewalling when you do that. And it's not healthy for you. And I really feel like that no. stress resonates and, and stays in the body. Stays in your body. And like whenever yeah. I've done that, I felt it in my back. Or, mm-hmm. And there's such a lovely relief to be able to just bleh, and like yeah. get it out and say it and feel vulnerable. And totally. And I'm learning now. And it's only, again, this kind of goes back to this thing of like when you're, when you're in a relationship or something that feels safe to do so, when you're actually feel comfortable to speak your truth and like conflict doesn't have to be anger it doesn't have Mm. to be shouty conflict can be soft and it can be kind and it can be very vulnerable and actually those I think those are the experiences that just feel so foreign to us oh but there's so so much strength in it afterwards because you're like okay like I've expressed that I've released it from my body and it's been held and I've been met and it doesn't mean that the other person agrees necessarily but they can like you know yeah oh I just I get I'm smiling a lot right now because I feel like uh, so my boyfriend we've known each other for 10 years we were friends for 10 years and we've been together coming up to a year and a half now and there's been times where I've been so we don't argue really but we have heated conversations at times and there's been times where I've felt so angry about something and I've shut down and I've got in my head and I'm being passive aggressive and then I'm and I've like and then I've gone out the house and I've gone and taken myself for a walk and I've had a word with myself and I'm like are you making up a story (laughs) what's going on what are you what are you telling yourself what's actually what are you saying and you know this is why I've taken up meditation not because of the arguments but because I've been more curious about what am I telling myself what's Mm -hmm. my story Mm. that I, I constantly bring up or I thrive on because the themes are probably the same and that's yeah. probably come from some other place entirely that like I mean I have the it's same child- thing and it's ch- mainly I find like a lot is from childhood mm-hmm. and it's these- like we want to replay those o- original wounds of something traumatic in a, in a kind of messed up way so there's two things I think there is what can be triggered in you is a childhood trauma. And that is then the narrative that you could then respond to like you did as a kid. And you create this self-fulfilling prophecy where you get the same results because you respond in that same way, Mm -hmm. whether it's stonewalling or shouting, leaving, or, you know, when you say you're going to cheat on me and then eventually the person does, I don't know, like those things that end up being reinforcing your own story. Um, And then there's the other version, which 
I recently was listening to a great podcast and it was talking about how we can become addicted to stress. So in a heightened stressful situation, which is really vague these days, it's not like we see a lion like we did back mm-hmm. in the day. Now it might be, for example, a feeling that your partner's cheating on you. It creates this adrenaline and cortisol that floods your body. And then you go into the world and your work, that isn't the case. You have a lovely work environment. Actually, that environment becomes a bit boring because you become addicted to this heightened state of adrenaline. Mm. So then you seek out a really destructive working relationship. Then you go and seek out toxic friendships because then you're constantly in this heightened state. Yeah. And so I think that there's, that's a different, another way of walking through the world. But essentially, you shout at that person that you feel is a threat to you, but really it's like your inner child is saying, I feel like you're gonna leave me. I feel really sad right now that you're gonna hurt me. Mm. I feel very vulnerable. And that vulnerability is something that I know I would avoid till the council. Everybody does. It's like, you wanna say it and I can't just spit it out. So I'm just gonna shout at you Yeah, I'm gonna say there's nothing wrong. And really, I know I'm like screaming and I'm crying. My little girl inside is like, but you might leave me and I'm going to feel lonely and no one's going to love me and you yeah. know, all this stuff. Because what it comes down to, I think we all, all we want is to be seen. Mm. And part of that is as well that we want to be vulnerable because we have to be vulnerable to be truly seen. But then all our, all of us have the same fear, I believe, that if we are truly seen and we are found wanting and rejected, what happens then? But I believe that one, when we when we approach situations with vulnerability and actually allow ourselves to soften, people do meet you there. You know, they meet you with integrity. It's just, it's in our wiring, it really is. Okay, unless we're dating like a sociopath or something. There are always exceptions. But I'd say by and large, like if you can really go into that space, and it brings you closer. That's why I'm oh, smiling. Because, because everyone's just... got the same fears. Exactly. And then the reaction from that other person is because they thought that they were being hurt. And then it just brings you closer because you mm. really see somebody for actually who they are. And this is why, again, I've really gotten into meditation because it's allowed me to separate myself from that voice and separate my pain from the past, from not that I've had any significant trauma that I can really see or, or understand, but any any hard responses that come through, I'm like, well, what does that mean? Where does that come from? I get curious. You get curious. And I love that. And that's such a powerful thing, actually, to just be curious. If you know, there's any takeaways from this conversation, that is one, because I think we very quickly go into, God, I always start thinking like this. Why am I so hard on myself? Why am I creating this? And that doesn't get anyone anywhere. But if you can be curious and observe Mm. your thinking patterns and actually be like, hmm, that's happened before there. Wonder why that is. And you give yourself, like you say, a chance to do things differently. You can respond rather than react. And there's so much power in that. And that's actually why meditation, because it creates Mm. that space between reacting and responding and there is a huge huge difference yeah yeah and I think if we go back to your very 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 first question it's like where does like my self-esteem come from and have I always walked through life as like my own person I would say that it's my curiosity that's allowed me to maintain um my own mind in some way because I've considered it and Mm. I've listened to it and I've thought about it and I've had to take on meditation now because I felt like my life has been so so much busier than it's ever been. You have and to do that. I had to take out, I had to give myself space in the mornings for 10 minutes, just 10 minutes. I'd love to do longer, but sometimes I'm just like, I just want to get out of this room and get back to life. But I have to give myself that de- designated time, otherwise I just wouldn't. And then I end up responding in like autopilot or to reacting my emotions. Yeah. yeah. Actually, that's something that's coming up for me at the moment because... The, the same thing you said about the like adrenaline rushy stressful thing I definitely think and I'm not over it completely but you know the nature of how I lived my 20s was very much in that headspace of like thrill seeking in every capacity and then it weirdly sort of ended up you know I, I don't drink or anything like that and I'm a lot more balanced but I found that I would seek it in coffee so I that would give me that sort of like spike of of stress really and I realized that I was quite addicted to that to that routine. 
Um, and then also just the, that kind of busyness in the mind, because that would then, of course, make everything go into like mania, which sometimes like, okay, you get a lot done for about an hour, but then it can become destructive. Whereas like the busier you get and the more things you have going on, the more you actually have to take that personal sovereignty and create mm -hmm. that space because otherwise things just become unmanageable and you're not going to enjoy the process. Yeah. But you always have a choice. Like you can go into a set of tasks and automatically mm -hmm. be like, this is also stressful. This is also much. And I have to really be mindful of that myself because I do go into sometimes a state of like, I'm overwhelmed and I'm stressed. But also that's a choice, you know, I'm making that choice every time I do that. Equally, I could go and be like, I've got this, this is easy, mm -hmm. everything's manageable, everything's okay, because it's going to be okay. But I think we do get slightly addicted, especially in like living in a city in sort of like mm -hmm. busyness means you're, you're doing it right kind of mentality that we get a bit trapped in that cycle. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think off the back of your point, our 20s, first of all, I think our 20s are about that. Just working, being in this like fantasy realm of you're living for you and you don't have any responsibilities and you're carving out your name and your career and living your best life. And then your 30s, you want other things. You don't want to build up, you want to build down. Mm. You want to get grounded, that's what I'm finding. And so family and partnerships and foundations are really what's important. Mm. And so then we start burrowing down and nesting and creating a home, not for everyone, obviously, but like that feels like the next phase of your thirties. And then the forties are when, you know, you've had your kids for the last decade and it's resurfacing again. I'm finding this to be the thing that I'm thinking about more now is like, okay, so if I move into the, in the next five years, if it becomes kids and family for me, which I do feel is happening because I'm so distracted by the dreams and fantasies of like little people in the house, but also having a career, how am I gonna do that? How am I gonna balance the two? Mm -hmm. And does that mean that I actually don't care about myself anymore? Am I losing my identity? What if you have a family? Yeah, yeah, that's the kind of things I'm considering now. Being somebody, like you said, that is so like, you know, focused and concerned about where I'm going next, what am I building next? How am I giving back in some way? It's like, okay, well, if I take my eye off the ball, who am I in all of that? And what happens if I, you know, invest all my time in this new family mm -hmm. space? And this you have to put yourself second suddenly. Or yeah. like third or whatever. Absolutely. And I had a really great conversation with a lady, the, the writer of this article, which you can find in Forbes, and I'll send it to you so you can put it mm -hmm. in the show notes. And she was saying... Because I said, you know, I don't want to stay at home all the time. Like, I don't want to be that that mum. Like, I, I'm thinking about my mum. And she's like, you know, have you questioned your inter internalised framework of what motherhood is? Ooh. Which I was like, okay. And she was like, you know, parenting is 50-50. It's, you know, you can, if you're able to, you can bring in your partner as much or as little as you want. That's interesting. Because for you, I guess the structure growing up was very much like mum doing mm. it and then dad going out and mm. yeah and you probably didn't even question that you were like god if I go into motherhood how on earth do I do that and then maintain what Absolutely. I'm doing I was now? already thinking okay well how do I save up enough money so I can be at home and work from home and have help at home and do it all and actually, I just completely just disregarded that my boyfriend in that. To do yeah. it <laughs> until until Tyson said to me, "I want to be there. Like I want to be there. I want. I'm carving out a, a life for myself where I can be there fifty percent of the time too." And I was like, "Huh?" The penny dropped. I was like, "Wait, what? You would do that? Why? But why? Like, who is? Who does that?" And I'm like, "Yes, you can do that. Obviously, it's it's not easy if you're not running your own company or if you know paternal leave." Um, it's tricky. It's like two weeks for guys. Yeah. That's and this is why our society is also not helpful in this way. Like the majority of women at their thirties tend to drop off to go into that space because they don't see how they can maintain both. And then when they're coming back, they're trying to keep up with their counterparts, their male counterparts that are, you know, at that point probably getting promoted and leaving the country and moving to New York or wherever it is to to go to the next level of their career. And when women are coming back, they're behind and there's no reintegrated program to help part-time mothers come back in and progress. You know what's really frustrating and short-sighted about the whole thing is essentially like those children that they're raising could be the next like CEOs or whatever. Like it's a really sad fact that 
people feel like they have to choose still Mm. today Mm. in a society that is supposed to be very progressive in certain ways that it feels like it's one thing or the other yeah and I just don't want that for me and I'm lucky enough to have a partner that wants to be there too and I think he'd be a great dad and I'm you know in a relationship where I feel like okay I can trust you I know you're gonna be there I know you're gonna get it I know you're gonna juggle everything or try to you know again I'm like trying to fight with my framework of like what I've been told is like but women do it better but mothers just know and mothers just get it and you know I'm sure you know evolution plays a big part in that but that's not to say that your partner can't step up to the mark in some way yeah Yeah. it's the phrase I had an interesting conversation actually with my mother the other day and she kind of brought up marriage in this way that like I think my mom's someone that's super progressive in her way of thinking she's like a real fucking feminist Mm. But she made this comment about, <laughs> she's going to hate me for saying this, but about marriage, about like, and she didn't mean this, but the sort of, the subliminal message was, you need to be picked. Like, that's still kind of, as a society, how we seek our value and our worth. It's like, oh, well, you're not married? You know, there's like a hierarchy of relationship. Mm -hmm. It's like you can be in partnership, but if you're married, you're like a step higher. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, I was like, do I want to get married? Because that's when society tells me I'm good enough and that I've been picked. Or do I want to get married because I want a marriage? Yeah. And I thought, if you could never tell anyone that you were getting married and you couldn't have a party would you want to do it? And I thought that was a really interesting thing to think about. exactly how (laughs) we should be questioning these things as well. Because who are we doing this all for? There's so many people that are married and in relationships that are so lonely Mm -hmm. that should be single, but Mm. they can't get out of it because of fear and shame. Mm -hmm. And sorry, but we don't get picked. When when women are on a date, I think we forget that we should be thinking, do you make me happy? Mm. Are you funny enough for me? Are you interesting enough for me? you know are you good enough for me like I know I would go on dates and not think that I'd be like oh I hope I I look good I hope I'm good enough today and being my best self and actually no we're sitting across those tables and we should be asking those questions Mm -hmm. and that's the same with everything like are we equal in this space like do I do I want to get married to you if you don't want to get married to me Mm -hmm. also what does this marriage mean like I personally I'm I'm I grew up in a family that was Christian and Muslim. And so my household was a mix mash of everything. And my dad was fundamentally incredibly spiritual. So we had strong moral foundations, but never one practice that we had to do. Mm-hmm. And that's how I raise my children. So I'm not, I don't want to get married for any religious reasons. And to be honest, I don't care if I really do or not. The only reason I would get married is for legalities. And but besides that, mm. I mean, he'll say like, but I would get married because of love. And I'd be like, but I, there's, I actually know people that are probably together for like 40 odd years, have never been married, and they love each other. They're not going anywhere. Because that's the thing. I think there's something in that because it's like you're choosing each other every day. You're Like every single day mm. you're choosing to stay together. Whereas there is something about like construct of marriage and it's a statistical fact that it makes people suddenly like... I'm stuck with you now. Mm. And it kind of can change, I think. I mean, you know, there's that amazing quote, which is like, marriage is a great institution, but I'm not ready for an institution yet. Like, I do think there's something incredible about it, but I don't necessarily think it's the be all or end all of what constitutes like a good relationship. Yeah, and I also think that you're, I think we forget like the emotional commitments that we've made. And the attachments that we're forming that aren't just easy to walk away from because you don't have to pay the money to a lawyer to get your marriage ripped apart. You know, leaving someone, whether you're married or not, but you've been, you know, you've got that deep-rooted relationship. You can have a marriage for for 40 years that doesn't ever reach the intimacy of a relationship that's not married for 20, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's... It's it's not a measure. It's not a measure, but it's easy to kind of put those boxes in place. hundred percent. So you're stronger when you've ticked this and ticked that and ticked that. But who says? I just think we're living in a matrix. Like, we really are. Like, what... When we step out into the world and we abide by certain rules and systems... I sound like I'm going crazy and I've drank some... (laughs) I love it. But, like, who who said that? 
Yeah. Who, who created, who ran well, that show? It's the same thing you said about just being curious about these things. Cause I that's think it. we just automatically like, that's what I have to do. Like, I get people message me saying like, I'm 27 and I'm still single, like help. I'm like, really? This is the wrong crowd. <laughs> like, I just can't believe that people are still thinking mm. like that, but they don't question the why mm. enough. Yeah, the only thing that ever makes me feel pressured was the fact that we do have a ticking clock. Biological clock. That's the only thing. And to and be honest, I came, conversation I came, came to peace with that because I thought, well, there's so many little kids, whether they, my, my boyfriend always says it, whether it comes to you or through through you or to you, you will still have it. So like, if I if I ended up adopting, then so be it. Maybe that was what was meant to be for me and for that little kid. And so I had to come to peace with that. And that took a lot of pressure off me when I thought, okay, well, if it's 40, if it's 30 that I find this or 50, then so be it. Mm. Yeah, that's a good attitude to have. Mm. And in terms of um, any takeaways for our audience who are struggling during like a big transition in life and perhaps struggling with their self-esteem, what would your advice be? I think be kind and compassionate to yourself because transitions are inevitable. We go through seasons, the world is spinning right now. We're constantly moving. You're never gonna be set and stuck and stay there. So just be kind to yourself in this space because this is where you can go down to that deep dark black hole and all these traumas can come up and you can really hurt and harm yourself in that space. Be kind and know it will pass and you'll get through it. And I think in the hardest moments is where the most you're rich with information of, okay, well, what's the problem here? If you just get curious, you can really understand what's the problem here? What am I saying to myself? What am I doing? And don't realize I do. Um, and how can I change it? If you want to change it, don't get me wrong. Also have a couple of days on the sofa crying and do all of that stuff. Allow eat, yourself eat all the ice feel. cream. Yeah. Eat all the ice cream, do all of that, that good stuff. And then pull up your socks and get curious. I like that. Well, thank you so much. This was such a joy to talk to you. Oh, you too. Thanks, Kaggy. Thanks, Jada. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find Jada at Jada Cesar on Instagram or me at Kaggy's World or Nora at Stars Incline. This podcast is growing by word of mouth, so do keep sharing it with your friends or anyone you think might find it useful. Saturn Returns is a Feast Collective production. The executive producer is Kate Taylor. Until next time, thank you so much for listening, and remember, you are not alone. <laughs>